Hey everyone, it's Imran from Options Insight back with another Trader Chats episode. Today's episode is called The Art of Trading. And I've got Brent Donnelly here from Spectra Markets, who actually wrote a book called The Art of FX Trading back in 2019. Welcome, Brent. It's a pleasure to finally get to see you. Hey, Imran, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for coming on, man. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I've obviously been, I've been a trading mentor now for about four or five years, but I think you've been doing it even longer than me. Um, and, and you've got decades of experience trading. So, you know, I feel pretty honored and privileged to speak to you. And I'm sure the, the audience are going to learn a lot from you. So why don't you give us a quick background of, you know, how, how long you've been trading with what you've done, uh, your career up to now. Sure. Sure. I'll try and keep it like, uh, manageable because, uh, I got a long resume. <laughs> so I came out of school. I was always interested in, in both writing and trading. And so that was kind of like always like the dual in my mind was like to pursue something more creative or to go to trading. And I grew up in the era of like wall street, the movie and like liars poker and all that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. even though in hindsight, I realized those are cautionary tales, you know, when you're 16 years old, they're not, they don't look like cautionary tales. They look like invitations to come and, uh, you know, make money on wall street. So I initially started in currency trading in 1995 and really that's been my bread and butter my entire career. But, um, I did trade, traded my own money in equities for five years. Um, in, in 98, I actually quit because in those days, FX trading was very flow driven. So it's more like being like a blackjack dealer than a trader as people would perceive it. It's, it's a lot of like, there's some elements of poker and stuff trying to beat your counterparties, but there was no like global macro or, or real like prop trading mentality in those days. So I, it just, I felt like it wasn't going to intellectually satisfy me. So I quit. And then I went home to Canada. I had a TV show on for a couple of years, like a cartoon that was on TV. And then I was day trading at that time as well. So I day traded for like for five years. Um, and we can talk about this later if you want, but decimalization and like failure to adapt killed me in 2002. So, and then my TV show got canceled. So then I was like, oh, I guess I better get a real job. Um, and then, so we overlapped at city, um, as you know, and then, so then my career from then on was mostly trading FX, um, and running desks, running, uh, spot desks at banks. I did work at a hedge fund for three years as well, just as a portfolio manager. Um, but like I said, really my bread and butter has been as a market maker, but then what I've been able to do over the years is kind of just by fluke, really, like I wasn't being thoughtful about it, but it just worked out well, is I've been able to integrate my my writing and like my creative desire into my job as a market maker by talking to clients and then writing. Uh, I write this daily global macro piece that a lot of clients got or get. And so I'm now kind of found a, a nice balance between trading and being more creative and so now I'm at Spectrum Markets, which is, so we service hedge funds and banks in FX and FX derivatives. So I cover like 150 clients, mostly hedge funds. And then, um, like I said, I write my daily and then I do some other stuff like uh, educational Substack and kind of just feeding the, the desire to write. Like I just love writing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's one funny thing is that I remember when I was in my twenties, whenever I saw a book about trading, I'd be like, why is this dude writing a book about trading? Like, isn't he making enough money 
trading what's the point like yeah. kind of thing but now i understand as someone who just likes to write when i wrote my books there's never any intention of of like financial gain like yeah you, if you self publish you can make decent cash but um but that was never the point is more just about like writing for the sake of writing is really what i do and then if people enjoy it that's awesome um it's so yeah so that takes it takes you all the way to here it's so funny you say that it's like the same thing when because uh, i love teaching so my passion rather than writing is more the education side because mm. and i found that throughout the years being at the banks where i'd teach interns and grads and yep. i find it really satisfying and, mm. and i'd be i'd be happy to give up like three hours of my trading day to just teach these kids some stuff and and other like heads of desks are like too busy to even speak to them and and so uh but it's funny because then people look at you and say oh well, if you're teaching trading, you can't be that good because if right, you were, right. you'd just be making all your money trading, you wouldn't be and trying to sell courses and things like that, right? And one <laughs> thing I would say to that is that that's usually true. Like, I think there's a lot of charlatans in the business of trader education and, and things like that. So yeah. I do think people are right to be skeptical. Um, but then, of course, you know, there are good people in every business and uh, there's plenty of good people trying to teach people how to trade. Um, yeah. And I, I had the same experience. Like I hated management. Um, like I ran the whole FX at Nomura for a while. So I had like 50 people working for me. I just did not like that. But yeah. I always like mentoring people and and teaching, you know, especially when you have the right people to teach. Um, that can be very satisfying. Yeah. And, and what I found was when I first started teaching, I, I focused on institutional business. So teaching bank staff, asset managers, things like that. Mm. But what I quickly found was those people are only there because their boss tells them to be there. They're not mm. there because they want to learn and they're spending their own hard earned cash and investing in themselves mm. to learn from you because you've done it for 20 years, right? right? And when I taught retail traders, I was like blown away by the engagement and the satisfaction that I got from teaching these people because they were so hungry, they were so engaged, they were asking questions, and it was so much more, because I like the interactive style of teaching. Sure. So like, when I teach people, I ask them as many questions as they ask me, because mm. that's how I get them to learn, right? But but there was no use asking other, like the institutional people questions, because they just sit there silently, because they don't, they probably weren't even listening to right. me. Right, they're plugging on their phones, checking where <laughs> exactly. it's trading or whatever, yeah. <laughs> and that's an interesting observation, because I don't know if you have kids, but you see that with kids too, is that if you, put them in an environment where they they can just be curious and learn about what they want to learn about. Like that's what Montessori does, for example. You just see them like explode with curiosity. And when you jam them in a desk and teach them biology and they're not interested in it, mm -hmm. it's just like, you know, it's very, very difficult to get through. Um, so yeah, you got to have a receptive audience, I guess. 100%, yeah. And as a teacher, it's so much more enjoyable as well. Sure, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. All right, great. So, okay, good. So we've got a good idea of your background. Um, it sounds like quite similar to mine in, in, in some respects. Um, so then, so now let's move on to the kind of trading strategies. You, you mentioned FX as your kind of primary asset class. Mm -hmm. How would you say over the years, you know, you've been able to establish an edge? Like what is your edge? Have you, have you figured that out yet? I'm sure you have after 30 plus years, but it, but it probably changes over time as well. But what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. And um, I've written a lot about this because I find it a, a really interesting topic. And as you kind of alluded to at the end, the edge that you have or that I have right now isn't necessarily going to be the edge that I have in like five years or whatever. So mm -hmm. um, to give you an example of that, 
So in 06, 07, 08, I worked at Lehman Brothers and my bread and butter at that time was just lead lag using correlation. So like if gold rallies, I would buy Aussie. If S&P, say if uh, US 10 year yields shot higher, I'd buy dollar yen, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of relationships and FX that, that are pretty steady. Not They're not static, but they're reliable. And so, but the funny thing is though, when I, like if I, remember back to Lehman Brothers, to say there were five traders, I was the only one that had real time feeds for S&Ps and gold and stuff like people just didn't think that way. Um, so it was and there wasn't there were algorithms at that time, but not as many. So that was a very effective short term trading style at the time. Um, and then after 2008, everyone began to understand the importance of correlation, um, because all the correlations went to one in 2008. And then also the financial blogosphere kind of started expanding at that time too. So now, like, let's say you're looking at copper as an indicator for the Australian dollar. If there's a big divergence, you'll see it on like 15 blogs. I'll be getting emails from Substack people like everyone has real time feeds. So there's just like very little edge there. Um, so that's an example of an edge. And then it dissipates and it's very hard to give up on something like that because you made so much money doing it for, for many years. Like really 03 is when I kind of started doing that mostly. So I made really good money for five years. Then in year six, it's very hard to just go like, okay, this doesn't work. I'm going to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so really like, so now my edge is understanding the big picture. So like global macro and like what's priced in and what does everyone think? I think having a big network helps me a lot. So I, I have a good idea of like, I don't rely that much on positioning data, for example, because I feel like the the sort of visceral feeling that you get from talking to people is, is more important or can be more significant than data. I mean, I use both, but so getting an idea of like, okay, what's the whole global macro picture and then understanding if, if current price is the sum of, or the equilibrium of all that information then what new information matters and how much will it move the needle and so that could mean you know moves in other asset classes like i was saying with correlation it can mean new information coming from Goolsby being dovish when the rest of the fed was leaning hawkish um, it can be from the data from understanding like the asymmetry going into the data and then trading the data but essentially what i'm always looking to do is like surf the changes in narrative and in order to do that, first, you got to understand like, okay, the base case of what is the narrative now, you have to understand that really well. And then you can see as the narrative's changing. So it's a little bit more complicated than like in the past, when I was trading single name equities, all I traded was I had, I had headphones on to the S&P squawk because there was still like a live squawk to the S&P pit. And I could get an idea of when bids were coming in and I'd get on the bid in like six stocks and try to make the bid offer and get out. And, you know, so um, really like the edge can be so different depending on where you're sitting. I mean, another thing that I've started doing a lot more in the last, I would say, 10 years is intraday effects in currency markets. Like for a long time, from about 2010 to 2015, if you just bought Euro dollar at 815 every day, it had an insane sharp ratio. Like if you just bought it at 815 and sold it at 11, it, it had a crazy sharp ratio. 
because there was these non-price motivated sellers that always came in exactly at 815. There was a fixing. It's not, it doesn't work anymore, but there was a fixing at 815. So they always massively sold, it would drop, and that was tended to be the turning point. So there's a lot of effects like that, like New York tends to buy dollars uh, and outside of New York time zone tends to sell dollars. A lot of sort of microstructure effects like that. But all those things and like seasonality and stuff, they're all just inputs into. So really what I'm trying to do is have a probabilistic process where each input gives me more confidence that the probabilities are in my favor. And then but then I'm saying all this like global macro stuff. But really, my time horizon generally is like one to one day to one week in terms of how long I trade for. So, okay, I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. So, like one day would be events and stuff like that. And then one week would be like, okay, I can, I can tell everyone wants to be short dollars, but nobody's short dollars. The data is weak enough. So, I'm going to like buy one week, you know, dollar Swiss puts or whatever um, would be Mm -hmm. another thing. So, just to like give it in like 45 words or less. It's essentially like understanding the current narrative and price and then being faster and better than other people at understanding what's going to move the price before it moves. Mm-hmm. And, and like I say, that's quite short term because I've always, I think I've struggled to find much consistent edge on the short term trading horizons. So I, I zoom out a bit more and I try to find my edge on longer term horizons, but the reason I think I could do that is because my implementation of my trades is in optionality. Right, right. right. So so really my edge is in the implementation. Mm. And like you say, understanding the macro narrative and when things are maybe too priced in. So there's asymmetry the other way, that type yeah. of thing. Right? But those are the things I'm generally trying to hunt down myself. Um, but, I, but I also find, because I follow your sub stack and stuff, I, I, I like, I like the, uh, the magazine cover strategy that you do it's quite funny uh because i've got another friend of mine who, who loves that loves the contrarian trade yeah and, and and so but you actually made that quite a systematic process right that thing yeah so my objection to like trading on anecdotes and and things like that is that it's easy to cherry pick so like i know a lot of people like there's a lot of elliott wave stuff about socioeconomics and things like that where it's just cherry picking because you have a view and then when you see a certain magazine cover you do it and if you see another one you don't and so what i wanted to make it more empirical and when i studied it um as you probably know but um if you go the opposite way of the economist covers that mention an asset class or a market you tend to make a lot of money um and generally i would say when i started i was very contrarian because like it's a lot of contrarianism is ego and wanting to be smarter than everyone else. Mm-hmm. So, but then you quickly realize if you're contrarian all the time, you just, you lose money a lot because trends are real. Like many, tr- many markets trend. A lot of times macro is just bigger than positioning. So I kind of lost my obsession with being contrarian um, after like about five years, mostly just because I saw that it didn't work that well. (laughs) Um, So, and I think that speaks to like a broader topic, which is being able to adapt and not just stick with one thing all the time Mm -hmm. is to me, I think that's the key to surviving in the long run is like people that say like, oh, I'm a great breakout trader or whatever. That's a huge red flag to me because that means you're going to succeed probably in volatile and trending environments and you're not going to succeed when things are quieter. And like what you really want to do is have 
either multiple styles that adapt to various regimes or just like I don't really do that systematically. Like I don't say, okay, we're in a we're in a range, so now I'm going to range trade mm-hmm. um, in a system. I don't do that in a systematic way. What I do is try to like sit down and be thoughtful about what kind of regime we're in, and don't slam my head against the the keyboard every day trying to trade some regime that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. if equities have been doing nothing for nine months and VIX is at eighteen point eight. I'm not going to be doing breakout strategies in S&P futures um, because that's like your your trading style has to fit the regime. And what I see a lot of is people having a trading style and not being cognizant of what the regime is. And uh, I think that's really an important thing. So over time, what you want to be doing is like know your edge, but then like having one eye on the horizon and finding like new sources of edge. Um, and, yeah, always hunting for yeah new so, source of edge i think makes a lot because because the, the markets evolve that's what makes them interesting yeah absolutely right so if you're making yeah. money doing something there's a bunch of computers that are probably going to soon figure that out at some point right like if you have a sharp before in whatever you're doing there's somebody some human or a computer somewhere is going to see that is going to be back testing that and say whoa that thing has a sharp before and they're going to start doing it so mm-hmm. i think you have to think of it as this adaptive system that's like the alpha that's there is only going to be there for a bit and then you got to monetize it. And one thing that you mentioned, which I think is, is also important is having different ways of structuring and, and different tactics in your trading that can be a source of edge, right? Like you're saying your structuring is a source of edge. If you just buy and sell directionally with a stop loss, like that's, I mean, that's fundamentally what I'm doing most of the time is directional punts with a stop loss. Um, but you, if you can layer on different option strategies and things like that, then you can start doing a lot more different strategies. And especially you also don't then always have to be long ball, which, I mean, we could get into a whole thing about that. But if you're a directional trader, it's easier to make money when things are moving and when volatility is high. So mm-hmm. if you're always buying options and you're a directional trader, you're just it's wrong way risk because you're owning vol um, and you're relying on high vol in order to be able to trade directionally. So if vol collapses, mm-hmm. your directional trading sucks and you're lo- and you're bleeding theta. So mm-hmm. um, like that was part of my development was figuring out way to figuring out ways to use options where I'm not just always long vol and like because then you just you're doubling down. You really see it when you run a franchise. Like I ran a bunch of spot desks at banks. Mm-hmm. And if you map the PL of the spot desk overall against volatility, it's like 45 degree angle, basically. Like the more vol, the more money you make. That makes and, a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's probably a flow thing, but also just it's easier to trade when things are moving. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of friends who ran desks in FX as well. And one of my best friends, and he was just permanently short vol. Basically, I have to be short vol all the time because yeah, yeah. if it kicks off, I know we're going to make a fortune. Right. Flow is going to go up. Opportunities are going to go up. It's just naturally going to happen. So I need to hedge against the fact that nothing happens. Yeah. And to avoid putting a bunch of trades that you hate, um, like what we would do generally is find like, OK, I think the dollar is going down right now. So I would only sell dollar calls in with limited downside, like using one touches or whatever. But everything I do selling vol is always limited downside, but mm-hmm. I very often will pick a direction because 
I find it very dissonant to like be short dollar puts when I'm bearish dollars. It just mm -hmm. like gives me the heebie-jeebies and I just always want to cut it at the worst time. So um, anyways, that's a yeah. whole different thing. Yeah. yeah, I think we could go on for hours about it. <laughs> um, okay, so then, yeah, we talked a bit about the evolution of markets and how you've got to change with the market a bit. So how, how do you see the impact of those sort of things like, the things I've I've put uh, high frequency trading. How has that obviously that's changed things a lot from back in the early days where you used to have this edge on correlation and the lead lags. I guess the HFTs took that edge away pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, algos obviously have been growing um, with with just AI and machine learning, and now we've got these zero DTE options that, that it seems like the algos are all over as well. Yeah. Um, so what are you, what are your thoughts about that? So again, it goes to adaptation. Like when back in the day, there used to be trades where you could just trade the economic data, like non-farm payrolls is strong. I'll buy dollar yen and sell at 50 points higher because the, that was before the algos. Now the algos just sweep everything using like some kind of simple calculation of how much dollar yen should move based on payrolls. Mm -hmm. So then my adaptation became the next derivative, which was the algos are very risk averse and they tend to create overshoots. So then I tend to play more like very short-term mean reversion on the data, like whatever the, the initial spike is, like count to 10 and then fade it kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot more you know, logical filter to it than that, but that's generally the idea. Um, because as soon as there's any momentum change, the algos just get out right away. So they're like mm -hmm. buying the initial move and then they're as soon as the momentum fades, they get out. So I found, sometimes you have to think like a second derivative, which is the same as like playing against humans in poker or whatever, right? Is you can't just look at your cards and go like, oh, um, you know, I got king queen, that's a, a good hand. If you think the other guy has has ace king, then that's a king queen is a very, very bad hand. So like knowing the actual what's going on in the game is important. And mm -hmm. I feel like it, you know, I could go into specific examples, but I think it's more about philosophy of, like, okay, zero DTE options are, are a thing now. A lot of people are complaining and saying they're stupid and whatever. Like, that's just a waste of time. Like, try to figure out where the put walls are, the call walls, or when does the, you know, when do people start selling the gamma at 2.30 p.m. because nobody wants to be long at 3.59 p.m. You know, like, start looking at how can I make money off of this? That's, I think, the fundamental thing that you sh people should be doing is, Okay, something new is going on in the market, whether it's algo, zero DTE, whatever. Don't like think, oh, okay, this sucks or this is like I can't make money anymore. Maybe it just means like you got to figure out how to make money in a new way. So I feel like being open minded and and adaptable. And I mean, we saw this when the algos came out, right? So in that was like 2004, 2005. Some of the traders were like, oh, this is bullshit. These algos are always front running me and this and that. And it's like, okay, well, if they're front running you all the time, like maybe there's a, a strategy that that can profit from that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's, it's it's a mindset. It, the mindset has to be my thing that I'm doing today probably won't work tomorrow. So I'm on high alert to figure out new ways to make money and to, and to like be thoughtful about what, you know, I, I'm not an expert in like super short-term equity options. So I, I can't really say what the strategy is. But like I know from talking to people, there are strategies that that, you you know, if you come in with a fresh mind and look at this and you go, wow, there's this crazy new phenomenon. You know, what does it mean? Does it mean like certain things probably happen from 2 to 3 p.m. 
and I can profit from them, you know, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. I think that's really the key is the times I didn't adapt, which I've written about in my books, those were the times when like I really failed as a trader and then had to like rebuild and and the times when I really succeeded were times when I was like, wow, this is a totally different regime we're in. And like, I got to totally change what I'm doing. For example, like in 08, I, I could see that everything was different, you know, starting in it, at some point in 08. And a lot of people just kept trading the same position size, doing the same thing. And most of those people blew up or just were getting stopped out constantly. Whereas if you, you know, reduce your position size and rode things for 6% in 08, you could make money almost every single day. So I think it's always about understanding the regime and adapting to it and not complaining about the changes because like that's the nature of markets, right? Is they're always changing. So you 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 just said failed when I failed as a trader. And and that made me think like because because that's what the market does. The market makes mm. you feel stupid. It, that's what its job is, basically, right? Yeah. And and being someone who like, who's traded even I don't know, 10 or more years longer than me. How many times in your career has the market just made you think, oh my God, I suck as a trader. Maybe I need to do something else basically, right? And, and how have you dealt with that feeling and that emotion? Yeah, it's a tough one, um, like from the emotional side. And then there's also like the sort of the logical side. So in 2002, um, my main strategy was capturing large bid offer on stocks in the direction of the futures. So like I had a good angle on which way the futures were going. And then I was trying to capture like a $2 wide stock because it was before decimalization. So spreads were wide, but mm -hmm. also before the bubble popped in 2000, I used to print out a sheet of all the stocks trading over a hundred dollars. Cause I wanted like large bid offer and large absolute value to minimize transaction costs. Like if you're trading a $1 stock like that, you're going to pay so much brokerage because there was brokerage in those days. So that that list of stocks over $100 was four pages long in 1999, 2000. And when I shut my account in 02, it was four stocks. So I was always gross positive, even through that whole time. But I was paying more and more bro as the stocks, as the value of the stocks went down. And what I was doing was like, basically thinking, man, if I just try a little bit harder, I'll, I'll definitely be able to like figure this out and make money. But the reality was that what I was doing before didn't work anymore. And I didn't know how to acknowledge that. Um, so that time, really, like I didn't have a choice. I just my equity was was running down and I had used my account to pay my bills for five years and stuff. So I didn't have any other money other than that. Um, so that time I was kind of forced. So there wasn't like a ton of psychology. But then at the end of 07, um, 2006 and 2007 there was a carry bubble so like uh any currency that had a high yield there was like a huge bubble basically these funds were buying them and then also selling options to lever up it was kind of like long what long-term capital was doing in 1997 yeah. and i just felt like i i can see this is gonna this is gonna explode and then there was subprime was starting to happen and like it was just so obvious that the shit was gonna hit the fan but i was so early like as many people were yeah. that it just kept on going up every single day up up a tiny bit up a tiny bit up a tiny bit and um i remember actually I, I i wrote i think i actually mentioned this in one of my books but i wrote an email to my wife saying like and i was flat on the year which was kind of unheard of as a bank trader in the seat that i was in like flat was bad mm -hmm. and i remember writing a thing to my wife saying like 
it was like December 30th of 2007. Like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like I'm losing money every day. Um, and I like some, there were still client drive-bys, so you'd lose money to that. And I was just like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I, I, I gotta like reevaluate what, what I'm doing with my life. And then it was new year's and I kind of like new year's I'm a natural optimist and new year's kind of gives you like that natural optimism. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? I've just got to keep grinding and, uh, and I'm just going to like, assume it's going to work out. And then, oh, it was my best year ever. I mean, like obviously after that carried the carry bubble did collapse. Um, and so I think part of it, it, this is a very hard one to answer because the answer of how to deal with those situations is to keep grinding and mm -hmm. like stick to your process and believe, believe in yourself. However, that implies, um, sorry, I got distracted there. That implies never stopping out. And you know, the other, the other side of that coin is that most people don't succeed at trading. And so you can't just keep on pounding your head against the desk, hoping it's going to work, right? Like I had enough empirical evidence by that time from 1995 to 07 that I, I think I kind of knew I have like the X factor or the skill to do this. And now it's just about like grinding and getting back to a positive mind state or a positive mental state. Mm -hmm. But there also is a point where people also should decide, you know what, the opportunity cost of trading, even if I'm making a little bit of money, I could be doing something else that I'm better at or that I enjoy more. So I get that question a lot, like how long should I do it before I quit or whatever? And to me, like if you're not, if you're not generating a meaningful income after two or three years or like at least clearly feel like you're on the right track, I think then you got to really ask, like, is this the optimal thing for me to be doing? Because success rates are low, you know, buried, barriers to entry are basically nothing. And it's just a really hard business to be in. But then, you know, the tail of the distribution is so sexy that it's very attractive to do it because if you succeed, you make a lot of money and you can have a really good lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I think essentially to sort of the shorter, shorter answer to your question is you got to have a process that you truly believe in. Mm -hmm. and, and when it's hard, you just grind and, and the longer you do it, the easier it gets. Because to me, like I've lost money so many times now that when I lose money, it just doesn't hurt that much. Yeah. Um, sorry. And one other thing I think that is really useful is collecting data on your trading. So after collecting data for about five years, I knew that my hit rate on any given day is basically 50-50. I make money half half of days and I lose money half of days. And then my P&L is really determined by the ratio of my, you know, how much I make on the good days versus how much I lose. Mm -hmm. And having that data, especially over multiple years, really desensitized me to losing money on any given day because I just realized, you know, like it's a coin toss essentially, but it's a coin that pays two to one. So that's mm -hmm. a good proposition. But when the coin comes up tails, you don't get all mad and smash your head against the, or smash your hand on the desk or whatever. Mm -hmm. You just go, okay, well that's variance and there's a lot of variance in trading. So I think developing like a rigorous process and understanding how you make money so that you believe in yourself when variance kicks in is also very important because otherwise you don't know if it's just variance or like you suck at trading. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I talk about journaling and analyzing your trades. Cause, cause that's how you really know what your edge is basically. Right. You, right. you just said it right. Yep. Your, your edge is not 
trade selection because it's 50 50 right mm. but your age is that you make more money on your winners and you lose less money on your losers right so yep. that's essentially what your edge is it's the way you're trading risk managing and structuring that trade right mm. um okay and then so then you know what about the the fact that now you run your own business because I've been through that transition as well. So whilst I love the market and I've managed to find a passion in teaching, so I've kind of combined the two, running a business was, you know, something I'd never done before and I wasn't really mm. sure about how to do it. <laughs> how have you found that transition to starting spec? I mean, obviously you, you wrote a few books as well. I haven't, I haven't been down that path yet. I don't know, maybe I will one day, but how have you found the whole business side of things? So for me, it was very refreshing because I've always kind of had like an entrepreneurial spirit, I guess. But when you work at a bank, it kind of gets beaten out of you over the years because it's just, you know, they're very focused on specific metrics and, you know, creatively developing the business isn't one of those metrics. It's, you know, you're basically trying to monetize the existing business and keep everyone happy. And, you know, the incentives are different. So it has been very exciting for me to be able to like be an entrepreneur for the first time in my life, mm -hmm. but then extremely daunting because of the paradox of choice of, I just have so many ideas and so many ways that I could build this business that it's kind of overwhelming at times. And mm -hmm. so for me, that has the really important thing has been prioritizing. Like I cover my clients, I write my stuff, and then I'm trying to build like an education platform kind of product as well. And anytime I do anything outside of those three things, I just feel like, man, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have put, allocated my time there. So I think it's mostly just about like time management and, and, you know, if you're like kind of a nice person and you get asked for a lot of favors, you tend to do a lot of people favors and, and, you know, go, can you do this conference for me? Can you do this? Can you do that? And so learning to say no and focus on what's important, I think has been, has been helpful. It took me a while to figure all that stuff out, but, um, but anyways, I, I really like it. I, I feel like it's given me more room to be creative. I can write more um, without censoring myself as well too, because again, when you work at a bank, you know, you're not going to criticize the fed for example, or, or, you know, if you work at a bank that is levered to China, you're not going to say anything bad about China and, and that kind of thing. So it's given me more creative freedom. And I think not being a market maker has helped my trading and has helped my writing as well. Um, just you're very in the weeds as a market maker. You're always being given positions you don't want. And then a lot of subconscious stuff happens where like you don't you don't have a view then you get someone gives you 100 million euros and you're like oh i'm bullish euro now <laughs> um because you have the position like i think there's like a psychological framework where it, i i think it's um in the endowment effect essentially like once you have a position you start justifying why it's a good position yeah. and as a market maker that's really that can be tough so i i've i enjoyed being a market maker i mean i did it for 25 years or whatever but i'm happy to to you know, be disconnected from that insanity for a while. What about the camaraderie that comes along with being on a trading desk? Is that is that something that you missed? Because that's definitely something I felt when I first started out on my own. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So when I was at Lehman, that was probably one of the most fun times of my life, like trading and this, the group of people was awesome. Everyone was super professional, but we still had fun. Everyone was making a lot of money. 
And then obviously Lehman went under and that's when I went to work at a hedge fund. So I went from like October, 2008, total chaos, people screaming. I was a market maker, dollar yen, which was like the epicenter of, of mm-hmm. the whole thing. And I went from that to like, you know, a window, a glass office in Connecticut with 12 people where nobody talks on the phone. And if you want to talk on the phone, you go to the phone room and like you can hear people's footsteps on the carpet and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I found that very dramatic and difficult because part of my trading at that time was sensing the electricity of, you know, in a crisis when when the shit's hitting the fan, all the phones are ringing, people are screaming. And then sometimes you can feel that electricity start to dissipate. And that's a great time to buy like S&P futures down 5%. Mm -hmm. Um, But this time, so that was last time I found it very difficult. This time I went from like COVID at a commercial bank where like 80% of people were already worked from home and everyone was grumpy. And the mostly the trading floor was quiet most of the time to this where we still have, I have a Zoom with 12 people, like the couple of guys in Singapore, five guys in London and like five guys in New York. So, and we're doing transactions with each other and helping each other with trades and stuff. So I actually feel like I'm in more of a trading floor dynamic, even though I'm in an office by myself because of the Zoom with 12 other traders. Mm -hmm. um, I actually feel this time more like I'm part of a, you know, a fun trading environment Mm -hmm. than than I was at my last job. Simply not because that place was a bad place to work. It was just because it was COVID and and everyone was work from home. So trading trading floors aren't, aren't quite what they used to be, but they certainly were not in, uh, in 2020. Yeah, the, vir- the virtual world has definitely helped us kind of connect with people or, who are on the same wavelength. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, like you might work at a bank surrounded by six guys, but you only get along with one or two of them. Yeah, so yeah. Now you can choose who is part of that Zoom room that you're in. Yep. And they yep. can be anywhere on the planet, but they can be your your people and you actually get that camaraderie and that connection that you feed off basically. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something that's hard for retail traders because like, even if I wasn't on this zoom, I have 150 chats with hedge fund guys and girls, mostly guys. Um, And so I'm kind of like constantly in the, the, I guess like the zeitgeist or whatever. Right. I know what people are talking about. I know generally what's going on and like, yeah, sure. Twitter offers that to some extent, but there's so much bias and, and, you know, the incentives on Twitter are to be outrageous and dramatic and, and bearish essentially, whereas the incentives in the real world are to make money. So I feel like individual traders that don't have a good network are at a disadvantage. And I would, as much as it's difficult, I would suggest uh, or recommend that people try to build some kind of network, even if it's just like four people who don't totally know what they're doing and are just Mm -hmm. learning. I feel like that still has power because to me, a lot of the time for me, what, when I have my ideas, just having a sounding board is the most important thing because I feel like you have so many thoughts in your head and ideas and, and just saying something out loud or writing it down tends to give it a little bit more meaning. Um, and then a lot of times through a conversation with one of those sounding boards, I'll realize like I'm missing something or my idea is not that great or whatever. And it's not necessarily a result of their feedback. It can sometimes be simply the act of me saying the thing makes yeah. me realize, yeah, that idea doesn't sound that great when I say it out loud. Well, it's not just that. It's like, because I do, I love the sounding board thing as well, right? Like I used to use my juniors as a sounding board and they right, had right. no experience. So like they yeah. weren't going to tell me what I'm missing, but it's mm-hmm. like, 
when I'm explaining something, and it's similar to when I'm teaching something, it's reinforcing my own understanding. Sure. So when I'm when I'm explaining my trade idea to someone, it's reinforcing how much conviction I have. Right, right. And if I hear myself explaining it, and it's like the more I say it, the more I realize it's a no brainer. Yeah. I might yeah. triple my size, basically. Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah. But if sometimes I just say it, and it's like voice, the right? Huh? Sorry. Sometimes you can hear the intonation of your own voice, and you're like. Wow, I'm really excited about this. Thing. Yeah, like, yeah, hundred percent. Or, you, or your sentences are petering off, and you're like, "Wow, this is a horrible idea." <laughs> <laughs> or, or yeah, it's, it's not even worth doing. I'm bored. I'm bored as I'm explaining it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And then, um, what about? Did, so you mentioned options. So are you uh, are you a fan of trading options? Is that something you, you use much in your in your trading? And how, how do you think about it? So, yes, but. Like I said, I feel like I have to be very careful about just buying options all the time. Um, a lot of times I feel like it, options give you really good optics, but low expected value. And I think so for me, it's always about thinking about not like, does this thing pay eight to one? Because like, sure, you can buy a lot of RKOs and FX that pay 20 to one. But they're never going to actually pay 20 to one because it's impossible to hit the yeah to pin the strike or whatever. So mm -hmm. People, I think, tend to get in, interested in trades that have good optics, whereas what you should really be looking at is high expected value. So mm -hmm. even sometimes getting negative leverage, like selling a, a call spread where you're risking a thousand or sorry, where you're risking two thousand to make a thousand. Sometimes I'll do trades like that because I feel like the expected value is high because you, obviously you're selling something out of the money and you think it's going down. And even if it goes up, some kind of feedback loop is going to happen where it can't go up above X. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like thinking in terms of expected value is really important and options and not not looking at payoff profiles. Mm -hmm. um, and then for me, try not to be a net buyer all the time. And then the thing that I think I'm good at in options is like still short term is identifying moments when vol is underpriced or when gamma is cheap. like. Through non-farm payrolls, generally, or any major known event, gammas and and is going to be expensive because market makers don't want to be mega short that stuff, and you know, just it's an obvious event. But sometimes you can notice you can you can find less obvious things, like say, I know if you know one twenty-five breaks in dollar yen and everyone's short, there's going to be a ton of stops above that. So buying like two-day one twenty-fives when I think there's going to be an acceleration through a technical point or, mm -hmm. or like there's a speech by the assistant deputy governor of the RBNZ and nobody's really paying attention to it, but we're right at the turning point for monetary policy. So, you know, there's a tiny risk premium there, but I think New Zealand dollar could move 2% if, if he's dovish, you know, like that kind of thing. So yeah. looking for like moments where I, I feel that there could be, abnormal amounts of volatility but staying away from events because like obviously those are those are oh, events price. you have to sell vol on events yeah that's yeah you, that's where your edge is but but it's hard but then you have to be willing to take the risk of a massive <laughs> move right but yeah typically the options market overprices events right? agreed yeah and and so yeah you'll find uh, like i'm sure you found this when you were younger that even if you're right on the direction of the event like you think cpi is going to be weak and you buy dollar yen puts you end up pinning your strike or losing money so often because the market's just efficient, right? Like it's, there's no yeah. free money on buying, buying, um, 
buying events. But I do find options just give you a lot more like instead of like I was saying earlier, thinking in a super linear fashion of like, I'm going to buy it here and I'm going to then sell it up here, which is perfectly valid, like I said. But there are times when that's not the path um, that you think it's is going to happen. You think you have a strong reason to believe nothing's going to happen for two weeks and then it's going to rip or things like that. So when you start introducing like the third dimension or getting away from linear trades, I think at times you can have an edge because you understand something that the, the market doesn't understand. And I mean, that's always the thing, right? Like I'm kind of stating the obvious here and saying like, I want to buy vol when it's mispriced, but it's kind of like the Druckenmiller thing of you want to get involved when your view of the world is different from the market's view, like buying Nvidia because AI is going to be big. Yeah. Okay. It might work because it's a momentum trade, but like, to me that that's not an appealing intellectual framework to, to, you know, as opposed to trying to understand something that the market doesn't yet understand. Mm -hmm. um, well, is, that's is where the big opportunity is, right? Is I think so. Yeah. And, you know, there's something to be said for momentum and trend following. There's nothing wrong with that. But then don't call it a fundamental trade. You're just riding the momentum and that's fine. Um, so, yeah. And and in even in short dated options, there are opportunities quite often where the market's just not seeing something that I'm seeing. And then then I'll, I'll buy that. That's when I'll buy ball. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. Um, sort of changing pace a little because we, we're kind of getting towards the end. Um, sure. You obviously traded for a very long time, longer than I have, three decades plus. Yep. We learned a lot of lessons. How would you would you say any of the lessons you've learned in trading have translated through to your life in general? Oh man, that's a good question. I should write something about that. Um, I, I mean, absolutely. I think so. In terms of, um, I mean, many. I could actually give you many answers to this, but but one of them I think is just coming in and trying hard and starting again every single day is kind of like my philosophy in life. Like no matter how bad or good things are, I try to just come in and, and start fresh every day and try my hardest, even if I don't feel like it. And mm. I think I learned that from trading because trading can just be so demoralizing and so exhausting that if you let it get to you, it just, it'll kill you. Like, I mean, not necessarily literally, but it'll kill your your desire and your ability to succeed. And then I started realizing that's kind of like the same thing with like writing a book or whatever. The thought of writing a book is daunting because like, you know, Alpha Traders 500 pages, which I never would have imagined when I was writing it, when I was thinking about it. And if I ever thought like, hey, I'm going to write a 500 page book, it, it would just I, I would start crying because that's impossible. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, whereas the idea of just like, oh, I'm, OK, write an outline for the for a book and then like i'm gonna make this outline more detailed uh okay i'm gonna try to write three pages every day and you know three pages a day it takes you less than a year to write a book so kind of thinking about every trading day as its own thing thinking like chunk chunking everything into smaller pieces i think has mm -hmm. helped me and it, it all ends up a lot of it ends up being grinding like working hard when you don't feel like it um is kind of what you're forced to do as a market maker and as a trader and mm -hmm. then i try to expand that to my other the rest of my life even as a dad you know like sometimes you don't feel like playing with your kid because you're tired or you're grumpy or whatever um but like doing it when you don't feel like it i guess is the difference between doing it well and not doing it well because anyone can do something when they feel like it
Mm. That's interesting. No, that's really good. Yeah. I guess it, it kind of crosses over a little bit with the, the living in the present, right? Not worrying about yeah. the future too much. Yep. Not dwelling on the past. You know, the you know, I've been researching a, quite a lot about mindfulness and and kind of what, what it is that makes people happy, right? Because it's mm. not money and wealth really that makes you happy. And and yeah, I guess, you know, if you do just focus on the task at hand, take every day as it comes and be mindful about it. Uh, and just do the best you can, then you end up being a much more happy person, right? That's that's kind of what yeah. I feel like some of these things are hard to talk about because they're so cliche. Like yeah. like journaling and trading, you know, everyone says that, but it's a cliche because it's true. Like mm -hmm. being in the present is a cliche, but it's true. So like for me, the the book The Power of Now. I don't know if you read that um, by Eckhart yeah. Tolle. Um, that was a real like brain changer for me in terms of understanding like almost everything that's bad that goes on in my mind, or especially at that time when I read it was thinking about something from the past or thinking about some, worrying about something in the future. Yeah. And the, essentially like that's where all the bad stuff happens. And then all the good stuff happens when you're in the zone and you're like, I'm writing or I'm trading in the zone or I'm with friends and mm -hmm. like laughing my ass off or whatever, you know, like it's always, those yeah. are the good moments. And the further you go away from that, the more you have like anxiety about the future or regret about the past or whatever. Yeah. Um, and like, obviously it's, uh, I'm, it's easy to say and it's harder to do, but you know, I feel like reading about like mindfulness and Buddha, there's another book called uh, why Buddhism is true. Um, mm -hmm. That's more like about the science of how your brain works when it's at rest versus when it's active and um, the default modes that you go into, like the default thought patterns that you have. Uh, anyways, that's another that what that was another powerful book for me is you're you gonna know, have to write one of the you have to write a book about this topic, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I bet you there would be a good book. Um, like what trading taught me about life, basically. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's a good title, but that that would be a good um, you know, I, I think I learned a lot about poker um from trading as well. Uh, again, yeah. grinding, right? Like tight aggressive. If you're a good poker player, you fold all the bad hands and and you play very aggressively when you have good hands. Um, and that's the same with trading too. Yeah, it's when you've got a high conviction trade, you stick some size on it. Basically, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right, and then and based. Okay, so we, we just said high conviction trade. So let's wrap it up with. I mean, we've kept this more philosophical and and kind of um, was evergreen this chat so far. But like, yeah. I mean, obviously we're both pretty active at commentating in trading markets as we speak. Well, well, what's your kind of highest conviction view right now on markets? Uh, I still think dollar Swiss and dollar yen will go down. I've had that view for about three or four weeks. And weirdly, actually, dollar Swiss has gone down a lot. And dollar yen is a tiny bit higher from when I got in, um, which is slightly unusual because they usually move together. Mm. Um, but positioning in dollar yen has been, I mean, dollar yen down was kind of the most popular trade of 2023 for a while. So mm. I get why it's rinsing. But I think like tightening lending standards, weaker US data and lower dollar are kind of the theme for, we kind of jumped between all these narratives, right? From like recession, soft landing, hard landing, no landing and all that. And I think we're gonna settle on some kind of like somewhat hardish landing, not not like a sudden stop, you know, financial crisis calamity, but a pretty dramatic escalation in, in the, like dramatic weakening in the US data over the next few months. So this position actually that I have is one of the rare um, again, I, I did, I put it on about two, two, three weeks ago and it's three, I did it through three month options. So that's a okay. real one for me. 
um, because I feel like the path of least resistance for the dollar is down and economists tend to anchor on the past data. And we've had such strong data in 21, 22 that it's just so easy for the data to be weak now. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you're seeing it in ISM and Jolts and everything. I think non-farm payrolls was probably like a last gasp, which there's plenty of those last gasps before the cycle turns. Um, so is, yeah. Is any, of that, is any of that Dolly in view also trying to play a change in Bank of Japan policy or is it just the broad sort of dollar? Yeah, it's a kicker um, right. because I feel like they've been very sneaky about how they're doing it. In you know, they're kind of being smart because they don't want to give them too much free money to the market. So like, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they move the yield curve control in April. And so it's a kicker, but, um, and, and wage, wage growth is strong in Japan. Like they have reasons to, to reset the policy now that Kuroda is leaving. Um, but I feel like it's kind of like a slow play thing where people get way too excited about it at the time. So like everyone goes into the meetings, short dollar yen, like overnight went to 50 last BOJ meeting. And so I, to me, it's overhyped. I just, I think in the end, dollar yen is more about the US economy and US rates, US yields. And sure, the J Japanese side, it kind of matters, but the, the real beta in dollar yen is still just the USA. Okay, interesting. All right, Brent, it's been it's been really, really nice chatting to you and, and meeting you properly. Um, thanks for coming to Trader sure. Chat. Yeah, nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, it was a good good talk. Yeah, yeah, really good. And um, well, I'll definitely get you back on sometime. Uh, right on. But, and I'll look forward to your next book. <laughs> yeah, I guess you, uh, you, you might have inspired it. I'll put you in the Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Take care. All right, thanks cheers. Thanks a lot, buddy. See you. Bye. Bye.